the Lion of Judah, I was reminded of Genesis. And as you turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, I will share with you why I was reminded of Genesis. If you know the history of Joseph, uh, this will be good. If you don't, I'm sorry for the sake of time, I'm not going to explain it all. But we know that Joseph was uh, the favored son of his father and his brothers hated him for it and they sold him into slavery and through God's providential working, Joseph became uh, the second in command under Pharaoh in Egypt. And, and in this drought that was brought about by God, uh, his brothers come to him and they receive, they don't know it's him, they receive some food from him and he keeps one of the brothers and sends them home. And, and now their father, Jacob, he's got one more favored son at home. Benjamin and, and Joseph told them, if you don't come back with Benjamin next time, you won't get any more food. And so Jacob says, I'm not sending him back. Uh, I'm not, we're just, we're done. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to lose another son. But the famine continues, the family runs out of food, and they're desperate enough that they have to go home, or not home, to Egypt to, to get food. And so when, uh, when Judah who is the kingly tribe of Israel and who, uh, who is the tribe from which Jesus came, when it comes time to go and to, to go get the food that they need, Judah comes to, Je uh, to Jacob, his father, and he says this in Genesis 43, verse 8. And Judah said to Israel, his father, Israel's another name for Jacob, send the boy with me and we, we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and our little ones. And then he says... I will be a pledge for his safety. So here we have, uh, we have Judah, the one from whom Christ would come, offering himself as a pledge for the safety of another. That is exactly what Christ does for us. He offered himself in death as a pledge for our safety. And here Judah pictures Christ for us that it is, it is Christ and Christ alone who brings us safely home to the Father. Let's pray and we will give our attention then to Colossians. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has offered himself in pledge for us. Lord, would we be found faithful? Lord, your word commands us that, that the, the, the moreover anything that you want from your servants in, in 1 Corinthians is that we would be found faithful. And Jude calls us to, uh, to defend the faith that was once for all handed down for the saints. Lord, we do not worship a changing God and we do not have a changing faith. And so may we be found until you're coming faithful. May we always seek to, to be sure that what we are doing is faithful to your word and faithful to your plan. Lord, but not only us, we pray for Life Church this morning. We pray that they would be faithful to the trustworthy word as taught, that they would be faithful to the faith once for all handed down. Lord, where we can be uh, innovative and wise and shrewd, let us know that. But where we must be simply faithful to your plan, uh, give us great wisdom in those areas as well. Lord, we pray for our missionaries, Peter and Debbie Dodd, and uh, we pray for the ministry that they have there in Taiwan. We think of them as they'll be coming home soon and even joining us here in the near future. And so we're grateful for that, Lord. We, we thank you for the many praises that they have. Uh, we thank you that uh, James and Joyce have received visas 
uh, to come to the U.S. for pastoral ministries and for some education. Lord, we pray for the Joy House facility that they have there, and, and we thank you for that and for the national workers who are working with them in that ministry to children. But Lord, we ask that as uh, with them, as James and Joyce move to Portland, that you would just help them to settle into church and life and education. Uh, here, we thank you for uh, the fact that they're able to come and that you have granted that. Lord, we pray with them for more workers in the ministry, particularly the Joy House ministry that they have there. And Lord, we, uh, we pray for Mr. Lee, their neighbor, who they have been trying to share the gospel with. And Lord, we pray that you would cause him to believe and that you would give him great faith and trust in Christ. Lord, we pray for opportunities for them to meet with their supporters as they come home as well. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, um, we ask that you would give us open eyes to understand it, soft hearts to receive it and obey it. Lord, uh, show us just how trustworthy you are. Lord, as always, we pray that the word would sound forth from us, that in our lives, in our workplaces, homes, friendships, growth groups, from this pulpit, from our classes, Lord, that, that the gospel would ring forth and that you would call sinners to yourself as a result. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would just uh, give us great insight into your word for your glory and for our good, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be looking this morning at Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. I'm actually going to, I think, back up and read the passage that, that Dwayne preached last week, because uh, this is an extension of that passage. So let's go back to verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It is pretty regular that I hear in our day and age, maybe it's on TV, maybe it's in conversation, things like experts say, or then there's the, the ever popular they say. And, you know, I say this as well, you know, they say that, and it always makes me wonder when I say it, well, who's the they? Like, what was the source behind the article I read that said this? Or, you know, when somebody says experts say or they say, how do we know who to trust? How do we know who the experts are? Let's just take COVID, for example, because it's the ever-pressing reality in front of us. One expert and one news channel might say masks are effective. And one expert says they're not. One expert says vaccines are safe. One expert says they're not. Who do we trust? 
And how can we trust our news sources? I think news sources in many ways are becoming more important than they've ever been because anybody can post anything on the internet. I don't spend a whole lot of time on Facebook, but when I do, I see all of these like, it's just a picture that somebody posts and it's got some factoid on it. Maybe it's about COVID, maybe it's about politics, maybe it's about something else. It's not from a reputable news source. Somebody sat down at a computer, typed something out and posted it, and now it's being reshared a million times as if it's truth. How do we know what is true? How do we know who to obey? In, in this world where there is so much information at the start of our fingertips, we have to be certain that our sources are vetted. You might have one news station say that one thing is true and another news station say that another is true, but one of the things we can know about both of those news sources is that even if they're seeking experts that agree with them, they're vetting their sources. There's a reason Fox or CNN or CNBC or MSNBC or whoever it is out there is not calling me and saying, hey, Logan, we, we're having a, a, a conversation on the news tonight about COVID. Would you join us as one of our experts? Of course they're not calling me. I'm not an expert on the matter. But when it comes to knowing who to listen to, we have to vet our sources. And this is what Dwayne showed us last week in this, this imperative command in verse 8, to see to it. That's a command in the Greek. God is telling us, you must, you have an obligation to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and by empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to to Christ. People everywhere for every time, from, from every time have been philosophers. And, and that's not inherently a bad thing. I think every civilization has asked the questions, why do we exist? What's our purpose for being here? Where am I going? And there is no shortage of answers. But so many of those answers are full of philosophy and, and empty deceit and human tradition. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong for, with philosophy. There is something wrong with deceit. There's not something inherently wrong with human tradition. But all of it has to be according to the plan. We're coming up this September on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And, and just imagine with me, if uh, I, most of us can probably remember where we were that day. I certainly remember where I was. I remember that day vividly. As these two planes crash into these buildings and the buildings crumple into ruin. Now imagine that we decide, President Bush at that time or uh, Rudy Giuliani, the governor of New York, decide that they're going to rebuild these towers. And they call all of their experts in. And the experts come and they stand over the heap of rubble and they say, we're going to rebuild this. Let's figure out how to put it back together. What are they going to do? They're not going to examine the pile of rubble they're going to look at the blueprints. They're going to look at the original plan. They're going to look at the design. They're going to trust the architects and the engineers who were involved in the building and planning and, and constructing of that building. You can't take the rubble that's left over without the original plan and figure out how to stand these two towers back up. There's just too much destruction. And so much of philosophy and psychology 
and, and many other areas of study, not inherently wrong in themselves. This is what they do with humans. They stand over the sinful pile of rubble that's left after the fall. And they say, how can we put this together? A little bit like Humpty Dumpty, though, because all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. We can never just stand over the pile of rubble and figure out how it goes back together. You have to start with the original plan. You have to start with the blueprints. And the original architect, the original engineer, the original designer was God. He is the ultimate expert. And what he says is true. And so we're told, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. That is, philosophy itself isn't bad. The word in Greek just means love of wisdom. There's no problem with love of wisdom. There's no problem with love of knowledge. There's a problem with it when we love the wrong wisdom and when we love the wrong knowledge. And so God tells us, be careful that that no one takes you captive by philosophy and by empty deceit according to human tradition and not according to Christ, not according to the architect, not according to the builder. And so as we ask these questions, why do we exist? What is our purpose? Where am I going? We have to know who to trust in answering all of those questions. And I think what Paul does for us in these next verses is after telling us to be sure that we're building our lives according to the plan and not just by trying to glue together a pile of rubble, he he vets God for us. He shows us why God is trustworthy and why we are not. Now, if you have looked at your outline in the bulletin today, you might be freaking out a little bit, thinking like, I do want to eat lunch at some, maybe even dinner at some point, Logan. Yes, it's a long outline. We're going to move quickly. We're going to fly over this passage at 40,000 feet and, and see each of these points in your outline there very quickly. As I sat and I looked at the outline this week, I, I looked at these 16 points there's five main points on your outline, but there's 16 subpoints. I looked at these 16 points and I thought, that's overwhelming. How in the world do I cut that down to something manageable? And then I decided, you know what? I think maybe it's supposed to be overwhelming. And so if this outline feels a little overwhelming today, and as we go through point after point after point, and you're like, Logan, this is a little bit of, of drinking, like drinking from a fire hose. There's more content here than I can swallow. This is overwhelming. Let it remind you of the overwhelming trustworthiness of God. The overwhelming trustworthiness of the God who not only designed us, built us, and loved us, but in Christ is rebuilding the pile of rubble from the original plan. And so we we do see a little bit, uh, mostly in this passage, about why God is trustworthy, but we also see why we are not. And as, as there's three main characters in here, there's us, there's God the Son, and there's God the Father. As we look at these three main characters, uh, there's, there's kind of two categories that get t- gets talked about. Who we are, and who Christ is, and what we've done, or what we need to do, and what Christ and what God has done for us. So let's, let's start by looking at ourselves. Number one on your outline, who we were. Uh, we're going to go out of order in terms of these verses, but that's okay because I've kind of categorized the statements here according to these. Who were we? We were dead. 
verse 13. Look with me here. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Trespass is such a fitting word for sin here. Because God lovingly gave us boundaries in which to live. And we, in our sin, step out of those boundaries. We trespass God's law. Now, we're a little bit like children. You know, if you've had children, you know, children's favorite thing to do is test your boundaries. But the surest way to let all hell break loose is to let them get outside of your boundaries. The boundaries that parents set on children are not because we're miserable people who love our children to be miserable too, but we put boundaries on them for their safety, for their protection, for their good, for their joy, for their happiness. And God has put these same kind of of boundaries on us. And in our fallen, rubble-like state, we're like, God, I want outside of your boundaries. We've all trespassed God's law. We've all done what he has said not to do. And here, we're also told that it is called uncircumcision. We're going to have to understand this reference that reaches back to the Old Testament because it comes in later. As God formed the nation of Israel, uh, the sign he gave Abraham that these were his people was the sign of circumcision. I've often asked why or thought why, and Scripture doesn't really give us an answer to that. So I'm not going to state this with any authority, but I think maybe one of the reasons that God chose the sign of circumcision is because our need to have something cut out of us is rarely more evident than in human sexuality. It's where we see our deepest depravity. It's where we see our greatest violation against God and this thing that was designed to picture Christ and his church. And we can talk about that another time. But, but I think maybe the reason this was the sign given is because we need to have something cut out of us. But this was never primarily something physical that needed cut out of us. It was primarily something spiritual. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, right before Israel goes into the promised land. So very early in Israel's history as a nation, Moses says this, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. There's something spiritually wrong with us. We are sinners, piles of rubble, wrecked by our sin, and we need to have something removed from us, this this deadness of our flesh. It makes me think of something uh, gangrenous in someone. If, If there's a section of dead flesh in your body and it's not removed, the whole thing, will it'll kill you. And so God is saying there's something wrong in your hearts that needs cut out. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27, the promise of the new covenant that we enjoy in Christ says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart 
And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Apart from God, we're dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcised hearts that we carry around, the deadness of our sin and of our spirits. Uh, but, but God, he, he removes that heart from us and gives us a heart of flesh. And that's what we're about to see that he's done and why we are so trustworthy, but I think, or he is so trustworthy. But what this reminds us of is that our own hearts, our own minds, our own thoughts, they're not sufficient to determine what truth is. My heart is bent towards things that are not true, towards things that are not good. And in our fallen, natural, sinful state, we need rescued from that. We are not a trustworthy source to determine what is truth and what is good philosophy and what is empty deceit and what human traditions are good or not good. We need the architect to define those for us. And so next, we see who Jesus is. Now, these first couple points are going to roll at the greatest length, and we'll start moving faster and faster as we go. Uh, number The first point, or, uh, uh, bullet point there under who Jesus is, is he is God in the flesh. He is the architect. He is the designer. He is the builder. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The, the word for fullness here in Greek is pleroma. And, and the, in, in, the, in the Colossian uh, community, these these false teachers that had come into the church and had come and lived there in Colossae and in Greece, they loved to describe God as the, the pleroma, the fullness of God. But in, in Greek philosophy, that, that fullness, that pleroma was divided up into lesser gods, into demigods, into a, a bunch of different gods who no one was fully God in and of themselves. Uh, they were all partially God. And God was not uh, full in anyone. He was divided up amongst these other gods. Well, uh, Paul is arguing, I think, specifically against that here. He is saying the whole fullness, the whole pleroma, everything about what it means to be God dwells in Christ. As evangelicals and as the name of this church bears, we believe in a triune God. We believe in a God who has eternally existed in three persons, and it's hard to wrap our mind around. We do not believe in a God made of three parts, nor do we believe in three gods. Thus, we believe that Jesus is truly and fully God, and God the Father is truly and fully God. Everything about what it means to be God dwells in the person of Christ and in his incarnation and even into eternity, it does so bodily. But the Father is also all of what it means to be God, as is the Spirit all of what it means to be God. We don't believe in three gods. We don't believe in a God divided into three parts. We believe in one God who has eternally existed as three persons. Now, interestingly, the word here for dwells bodily is a, a word that implies permanence. If I told you, uh, we do this in English as well, though we don't assume it. If I told you I live in Walla Walla, that's different than if I tell you I'm staying in Walla Walla or I'm camping in Walla Walla. This word here for, for dwelling in Christ, it implies permanence. 
It's telling us that, that there was never a beginning to when the fullness of deity began to dwell in Christ. It wasn't that, that at his birth, God took a human and inserted deity into him. He has always been God and the whole fullness of what it means to be God. And it's a fitting place. We can trust Jesus because of who he is. He is the architect. He is the designer. He is the engineer. And he is also, the second point on your uh, outline there, he is ruler over all. Notice in verse 10b that he is the head of all rule and authority. He is the one in charge of everything. And I think here Paul is reaching back to chapter 1, verses 15 to, through 20, which says he is the image that is the exact picture of God, the firstborn that's in priority, uh, not in creation, the, the primary one of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness, there's Pleroma again, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Certainly who he is makes him an expert on all things, that he is God, but he is also ruler over all, and we can trust him. But it is not just who he is as the ruler over all things and the eternal God that Paul points to as to why we can trust Jesus. He also points to what Jesus has done. And I'm going to have you, Riley, put the next two points up there simultaneously. He, was, he, he died and was buried. Now, the text does not say in verse 12 specifically that he died, but again, as we saw a couple of weeks ago at Easter, you bury the dead. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through the power of, uh, you were all, <laughs> I skipped a line here. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Jesus, the eternal God, uh, chose willingly to allow the fullness of what it means for him to be God to dwell in him bodily. He took on flesh. He became part of his own design, became part of his own creation, wrote himself into the story of humanity as more than just ruler, but as one of us. And then having been perfectly obedient, no trespass, no violation of God's will, and not deserving to die, died in our place and was buried. If there is ever a God we can trust, it is a God who is willing to do that for himself. It is a God who is willing to placate his own anger against our sin at his own expense and who didn't do so grudgingly or angrily, but who did so with joy. Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. In other words, Jesus saves us from himself. He is the judge. He is the ruler. He is just. He will reconcile all things in the end. And yet, rather than just uh, pouring out his wrath on us for our sin and trespass, he willingly takes it on himself, dies in our place, 
and is raised again three days later by his father, offering us newness of life. Anybody who is willing to give so much to rescue us, not just from ourselves and from our sin, but from his own consequence against our sin, is certainly a God who we can trust. If he will go to that length for our good, why would we ever doubt his goodness towards us? But then Paul turns from Christ, saying you can trust Jesus because he is the eternal God and ruler over all things, and because he did die in your place, and he comes to God the Father, and he doesn't primarily tell us who God is, because that we see in the person of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who shows us who God is. And so everything that is true about Jesus as being the ruler over all and as being the eternal God is also true of the Father. But Paul then points us primarily to what God has done. And this list is overwhelming. And I pray that you and I will be overwhelmed by the goodness of God and what he has done for us. The first thing he has done for us is he has filled us in verse 10. We saw that in Christ, the whole fullness, the pleroma of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. What does it mean to be filled? Well, here I think for us, it's a little bit different than the word used of Christ being full of of what it means to be God. Here we are filled by God. We, not, we are not God, but God has filled us. And in order to understand what it means that he has filled us, we have to be, we have to under, or made us complete. That's really the connotation here. That, that in Christ, God has completed us. But in order to understand how he's completed us, how he's taken this pile of rubble and resurrected it again to be complete people, complete structures, complete buildings, we have to understand how we were incomplete. And in our own, in the deadness of our sins, we're complete intellectu- incomplete intellectually. We don't know all things. We're not omniscient. We're not perfect in our knowledge. Again, just watch the news You'll see how quickly experts said one thing 10 years ago and they say another thing now. 60 years ago, your doctor might have told you you should smoke. 100 years ago, he might have told you to take heroin, right? Expert information changes as our knowledge increases. But, but here, God is not incomplete intellectually. He is the one who made all things and knows all things. And he has given his truth to us, everything that we need. We're incomplete spiritually, dead in our sins. We're incomplete relationally, separated from God by our sin. And let's just be honest, really, really easily separated from each other by our sin too. But he has united us both to God and to each other in the gospel and in what Christ has done for us. We're incomplete morally, being sinners by nature and by choice. But it is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and in whom the fullness of deity dwells. And thus, it is in his perfections when we come to Christ and are saved and are indwelt by the Spirit that all of our incompleteness is completed by God. He has filled us. 
He has also, uh, second bullet point, circumcised our hearts. Verse 11, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. We really don't need to elaborate here. We've talked about this. We've had the deadness of our sin cut out of us, and he has removed our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. But Paul wants us to know that he's not talking about physical things here, that he's talking about spiritual things, and so he tells us that it is without hands. That spiritually, God has cut the deadness out of us. He has not only filled us and circumcised our hearts, he has, been, he has buried us with Christ. Verse 12, and we've seen this recently in the picture of baptism. And so Paul is referring to that picture. And he said, having been buried with him in baptism. This is to say that the, the death and burial of Christ has been accepted as our death and our burial, that the debt of death we owe because of our trespasses has been paid, and we have died with Christ. His death is ours. His death gets counted to us, and this leads us to the next point. We have not only been buried with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, verse 12b, in which you were also raised with him through faith. God not only accepts his death as our death, he accepts his life as our life. And through faith, we have been crucified with Christ and raised with him. And just so we're we're clear on it, he also, next bullet point, raised Christ. The last part of verse 12, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You know, this is the one miracle in the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus, that is attributed to all three members of the Trinity. We're told that God raised him from the dead. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up. And we're also told that the Spirit raised him from the dead. Uh, This this resurrection of Christ and, and their resurrection of us is a Trinitarian work. At the cross, the Father's anger for our sin is satisfied as the Son makes a sufficient payment for our sin. And as the Spirit places us by adoption into the family of God. Our death and resurrection and salvation, like Christ's death and resurrection, is distinctly a Trinitarian work. And so Paul tells us he not only raised us with Christ, but we have to believe that he raised Christ as well. And not only did he raise Christ, verse 13a, he made us alive. When he did all of this, raising Christ, burying us with him, raising us with him, God made us alive together with him. As believers in Jesus, we are no longer spiritually dead. Notice the past tense here in verse 13, and you who were dead. We are no longer dead spiritually when we come to Christ in faith. We have been made alive. We have been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with him, and we have been raised with him. We have received spiritual heart transplants, and God has removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. Not only has he made us alive, he has forgiven us, verse 13b. Part of being alive spiritually means that we are forgiven of the trespasses that we have committed, having forgiven us all our trespasses, all the wrongs that we've done. Every time we've stepped out of bounds and transgressed God's law, all of it is forgiven. And how did he do this? Next bullet point, this is amazing. He canceled the record of our debt with its legal demands. When we are buried with Christ and raised with him and given new life, every single thing we have done wrong, the record of our debt is gone. There are times 
when in a court of law, people are not held accountable for the crimes that they've committed. Oftentimes this happens with minors. The legal system sees them as unable to be responsible for their own crimes. And there's one of two things that usually happens here. In one case, a record is sealed. Well, that thing you did, it's still in your record, but we're going to seal your record so that it doesn't look like you did anything wrong. And in another, your record is expunged. We take what you did wrong and we remove it from the record so that there is no record of debt. And that is what God did for us. He didn't seal our record. He expunged it. I am a great sinner. But if you look at my record of sin, it is perfectly clean. Let me ask you this. Do you relate to other Christians in terms of forgiveness and kindness as though they're guilty or as though their record is clean? Because if God can look at us with clean records, if no charge can stick, we should treat each other the same way. Our dealings with each other must be as innocent to innocent. But my favorite way to relate to people is as innocent to guilty. But who am I to look at you or anyone else as guilty if God has declared you innocent? Because I am not judge. I'm the guy on the next bench awaiting trial. And through Christ, he's going to declare me not guilty as well. How did he do this? Just by turning a blind eye? No, not at all. By sending his son to pay the penalty my sins deserved. Look with me again at verse 14. Uh, he, He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do it? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Every time I read this, I have this picture in my mind of of my docket, my my legal, this book is way too small to hold the record of my sins. (laughs) But we'll use this one since it's here. It's like this book where the record of my sins, and here is Christ's hand nailed to the cross, and between his hand and that cross is my record of debt. And when he dies, it dies with him. How did he cancel the record of our debt? He nailed it to the cross. He treated Christ as guilty so that I could be treated as innocent. He put him to death so that I might live. And in the process of all of this, he put the rulers to shame, verse 15. And for the sake of time, I won't elaborate on this. We could look at the beginning few chapters of 1 Corinthians. But God has put all of the world's philosophical systems, deceit systems, and anything that is not according to Christ, to shame. How did he do it? Through this unimaginable plan of taking on our sin himself, of bearing it to the cross, of canceling the record of our debt. Surely we can trust Jesus, who is the eternal God and who died in our place, and surely we can trust the Father who did all of this for us, Let's just be really, really honest for a moment. Sometimes the philosophy of the world, it makes sense to us. It seems right. Sometimes the deceitful looks true. Sometimes the road ahead of us looks like it's full of water too. 
Just because something seems real doesn't mean it is. The reality is, as Duane reminded us last week, we must test everything we see and hear and read and are taught. And for, for the you young folks who are about to go to college, this is really, really pressing upon you. Or even in high school, you must test everything you see on Netflix. You know what the word um, amusement means? If I were to say, uh, I've been thinking about something, let's muse upon it together, what would I be saying? I'd be saying, let's think about this. The word muse means to think. And in Greek, ah negates something. Amuse literally means doesn't think. When we amuse ourselves with Netflix and various books and uh, TikTok, we are shutting off our brain and handing it to somebody else. And Dwayne called us last week. He said, we don't have to necessarily avoid all of these things. There's certainly aspects of those things on there that we should avoid. But he called us to simply not shut off our brains and compare everything we hear, see, read, entertain ourselves with, educate ourselves with to Scripture because it is here that we see what is true and not full of empty deceit. And so when our hearts well up and we say, hey, look, this seems good to me, but I'm not sure that I know how to square that up to God and to his word. We must understand ourselves as being inherently untrustworthy to answer these questions. We're the pile of rubble that can't rebuild ourselves. We must trust the architect. And so in light of this, what are we to do? What are we to do? Simply, we're to trust. We're to trust that God is good. Uh, look at, look at verse, uh, chapter, or verse 12 here in chapter 2. I'll back up verse 11. In him you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. That's all we do. Who we were is dead. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. God does everything else, and all he calls us to do is simply trust him. What do we do? We trust that all of this is ours through faith. We can't purchase it. We can't earn it. We simply receive it through trust, and we trust that what God says is good. We trust that what God says will make us happy will actually make us happy. We trust when God says what marriage is or sexuality is or sin is, that he's the one who knows as the designer. We trust that it's not our sinful desires and worldly pursuits that will make us happy or holy or healthy. But most of all, we trust that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is trustworthy. How would your life look different today if you really trusted that God's character, his commands, his permissions, and his prohibitions were all for your good. Lord, you are a trustworthy God. And our hearts are deceived and deceitful and desperately wicked. But you have given us your truth, not only in your word, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we be overwhelmed today by your trustworthiness.
ourselves. May we trust you and what you say is right more than we trust ourselves because you are the trustworthy God. May you be glorified in all of that as we trust you, not only for your glory, but also for our good. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.